Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Biopharma podcast. We're excited today to have on a couple of guests from a company, MMS Holdings, to talk about emergency use authorizations. These have been in the news like crazy lately. If you haven't seen them, then you're probably not paying much attention, but we're here to talk about those today. And uh, our two guests today are Dr. Uma Sharma, the Chief Scientific Officer at MMS, and Ben Kaspar, a Senior Ma Manager of Regulatory Strategy. So as a quick introduction, uh, Dr. Sharma is the Chief Scientific Officer at MMS, a global leading clinical research organization. Dr. Sharma provides oversight for all clinical activities, especially submissions and complex regulatory projects. As needed by her sponsors, she leads advisory committee meetings and participates in advisory boards for drug development, as well as product defense strategies, especially for critical safety issues and label strategy discussions. With more than 24 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry, she has been invited to speak at several national and international events. Our other guest, Ben Kaspar. Ben works with sponsors to plan their programs and navigate the regulatory submissions process throughout the entire drug development life cycle. Ben and his team have a deep experience in regulatory science for drug and biologic development, designing innovative strategies to maximize the likelihood of regulatory approval of the target across a variety of therapeutic areas, including rare diseases. Okay, so that was a mouthful. How are you doing today? <laughs> We're good. Very well. Excellent. Yeah, your, your, um, your bios are a little bit nicer than mine. I, there's a lot of big words in there. So mine, mine's, mine's, mine's simple. Um, hey, welcome to the podcast today, guys. I'm really excited to have you on here today. And we're going to be talking about EUAs. And I got a bunch of questions for you. But before we do that, just so that people can get to know a little bit about you, besides the bios that I just read, I would like to hear what is the last book or what is a book right now that you are reading? I'm going to say, Uma, could you go first? I'll go with the last book because at this time I'm quite busy with work stuff, but uh, one, of the, one of my good reads recently was The Choice uh, by Dr. Edith Eva Ager. And um, it just happened to stumble on it as one of the recommendations um, on Goodreads. And I thought, okay, let me just pick this up. Um, and it, what a right book it was during the pandemic last year. It just was um, something about the survival of the human soul um, under difficult circumstances and what you can achieve if you just are go at it and are always in the right mindset and attitude. I would recommend that to anyone. It's a great read. Excellent. That's a good one. So it's a, it's a nonfiction. Yes. Um, okay. She is. Um, she. Um, she was a Holocaust survivor, and it is her story. Oh. And wow. she still practices to date as a psychiatrist. Whew. Okay, I can do the math there. All right. Yes. <laughs> Wow. All right, Ben, you're up next. Yeah, I think the most recent book I just finished this weekend was The Plot by, I think, Jean Hemp Korolitz is how you say her name. It's, it's like a literary thriller, um, sort of explores the question of who owns their story, um, as well as ideas of, of authorship and things of that. Well, at, at the same time, it's kind of a conventional thriller kind of plot twist structure. So Kind of an interesting book, philosophical, but entertaining at the same time. Called The Plot? The Plot. All right. All right. Excellent. Well, I just finished reading 
let's be honest, listening <laughs> to a book called Fortitude by um, a guy named Dan Crenshaw. He was a former Navy SEAL. I thought it was a pretty interesting, pretty interesting read. He's got quite a story. Wow, does he have a story? And at, I don't know how old he is right now, but I know he's younger than me. He makes me feel like I have not done much in my life. Let me tell you that. <laughs> quite a, quite a accomplished dude. So, all right. So we're going to talk about EUAs today. Um, I just did a quick, uh, quick search before our call and just to, just to sort of see where it's at today, right? If you typed in EUA into Google and looked up the results, you were going to see a lot of different things. Um, in the news, you're going to see stuff about the big ones. You're going to see Pfizer. You're going to see these names, Pfizer. You're going to see Moderna. You're going to see AstraZeneca. You're going to see Johnson and Johnson. And then a whole lot of other stuff, um, right? That's it's a whole lot of other stuff. And you're going to see things about whether it has it, whether it's being delayed. You're going to see um, about ages, right? So, you know, is it the 12 to 18 year olds now allowed the EUA or is it the two to 11, right? Um, a lot of, lot of these different bracket, bracketing type things. And then if you, it's funny because you see it's, it's those four, right? So those are the vaccines, right? And then everything else. And the other stuff I see a lot of is diagnostic type stuff, um, uh, antibody type stuff, or, uh, right? So there's all these other things that people aren't really maybe in the broader sphere talking about quite as much, but that's what we see when, when, I, when I look it up. And um, I guess as a way to start, Uma, if you could, could you just sort of explain what an EUA is mm -hmm. and why we're hearing about it so much this year? Sure, I'll start and Ben can continue. But an EUA is an emergency use authorization. Um, it is um, a provision for getting drugs and diagnostics on the market in an accelerated fashion, particularly during an emergency. So that's the key. Um, the sponsor or the manufacturing company or the pharmaceutical company cannot decide that they want to do an EUA. Um, Health and Homeland Services, HHS, has to declare an emergency, which happened last year um, because of the pandemic. And it's only then under those provisions can someone file for an EUA for their product, whether it's diagnostic, whether it's an antibody, whether it's a vaccine, to be approved um, more rapidly given the given the current situation so that is what an EUA is Ben yeah I guess the, the thing I would add to that is just in terms of historical context um, the law actually came into effect in 2004 and it was really um, it was part of this uh, law called the Pro Project Bioshield Act that it, it really developed in response to to terrorism and really as a way to prepare uh, for bioterrorism attacks. So uh, one of the things that's important to remember is that that's more of a, uh, a prepare in advance kind of framework where you, you know, you're preparing for an acute event. And that's, that's really sort of where the regulation came about. Um, pandemics and things like that, it wasn't something that they were thinking about quite as much uh, when they initially passed the law, although it actually became what it was used for more, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Um, and it has been used in the past. Uh, there, there were emergency use author authorizations around swine flu, MERS, Ebola, and Zika. Uh, but again, with the exception of swine flu, those were mostly just 
uh, sort of advanced preparation rather than actually um, using them in a scenario where, you know, where patients were receiving drugs or diagnostics. Um, uh, so what really changed with COVID is that this is the first time we're seeing uh, the use of the EUA to actually develop new drugs. It, that's really the big dramatic change. Um, and again, uh, it, you know, this law wasn't designed completely with that in mind. And, and it's, there's just a lot of, um, you know, and what that means is that the FDA, and I'll talk about this throughout, is that the FDA is using a lot of their existing tools um, within that sort of broader umbrella that, that the EUA allows. Hmm. I'd recognize okay. none of us have been prepared for a pandemic. We didn't see this coming. Even when it came um, early last year, we thought it would be limited to one region and, and just end there. So it's almost like trying to fix a moving car um, in terms of implementing the EUA. So not to be not serious, but we've all seen about a hundred movies where these <laughs> were much worse versions of this came out and they had the vaccine within days, usually intense, ready to go. I always thought that was interesting. So, and we, we haven't been, we weren't able to pull it off quite that fast, but it was pretty darn fast this last year. I, you know, we all spend time in the <clears throat> pharmaceutical world and nothing really moves fast uh, mm -hmm. and on purpose. Uh, so that's, that's why this is such a big deal. So, so something I'm curious about, I know a lot of people are curious about this is when we talk about an EUA and you were just talking about it in relation to the, it's the FDA, right? Does it allow uh, drugs, diagnostics, vaccines to be used around the world during a pandemic? Is this just the US? Do, do we have some kind of weird top down ability to sort of push that out or does everybody have to, to, to do their own version of this um, when something gets done? Um, could you speak to that, Uma? Sure. The EUA applies to the U.S. Um, it is an FDA approval for whether it's drugs or diagnostics. And there are certain regulatory agencies around the world that rely on the expertise of the FDA because they're not so far ahead in terms of drug development. And they may choose to have these products available in their regions, but it does not guarantee a market approval across the world. And EUA is limited to the United States. Okay. So when we talk... So if you were to, to talk about, um, say, Europe, is, your, does, is it the European pharmacopoeia, the Euro, European um, health authorities, that they, they, they have it in store of a block, right? It's yeah. not one country. Is it, is, does it fall like the pharmacopoeia type um, um, groupings like India's got its own and China's got its own and Japan's got its own? Um, or or is, it, is it more regional based? Every country has their own regulatory authorities that approve um, the individual vaccines, drugs, um, as well as diagnostics. So for example, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine is not approved in India. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not uh, for any reason that because they don't trust the US approval or whatever, it's their own process and their own approvals. Um, and also it's up to the sponsor to submit to those countries. So it's not an automatic approval. Every sponsor has to decide which regions of the world they want to market their um, product in, um, and they have to submit an official application in that particular region, either for an accelerated approval, which we call an EUA here under an emergency mm -hmm. situation, or whatever the mechanism is that exists in those regions. Okay, so, so um, how, how, do, how would a country 
Um, this isn't on my list of questions for you. How would a country pick or not pick? Say, I mean, do they go out to like the shopping cart of EUA type um, scenarios to go, oh, we want the Pfizer vaccine in our country. How does, how does that play out? I don't think the country can pick. I, again, I go back to it, the sponsor has to go and file in those okay. countries for approval. It's just like um, a, an approval in any other region. I mean, sure, they can maybe um, uh, want or request the sponsor to submit their data, um, in, but short of the sponsor submitting in that region, it becomes difficult for, for countries to pick. Let's take a reverse scenario, for example. So the AstraZeneca vaccine is approved in Europe and several other parts of the world, but it's not approved here in the US. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they're not automatically assuming that because millions of Europeans have received that vaccine, it's, it's safe for us here in the U.S. to approve. So the review process is country dependent. And I just wanted to play that reverse scenario so that it's, so you can understand that every country is, is very specific in terms of how they um, approve and receive these applications. Yeah, it's I, I just I just it's just interesting how it is. And we we're kind of spoiled here in the US, right? And we, you know, we've had the fastest ones um, available. And I've, I've I actually genuinely don't exactly know how it works in all these other countries. So I'm curious, I'm like, well, we already have this one approved here. We know it's good. I don't know why they wouldn't be like trying to get it if that was even, you know, possible. So well, to be honest, Jesse, I mean, we are stockpiling the AZ vaccine yeah. without an approval. So actually during the crisis in several other parts of the world, um, just last month, several of us you know, petitioned congressmen to have President Biden try and release some of that stockpile to mm -hmm. countries like India, where there's a second wave and, and it's really um, pretty critical that they get some sort of a vaccine um, right away. And if we're stockpiling something that we haven't even approved, um, that really doesn't serve us. Purpose. And as of right now, we kind of have more than we need of the ones that we do have approved, right? So Correct. The pandemic will stay as long as the whole world doesn't get a handle on it. Yeah, yeah, true. So, um, so you know, when I first started talking about this, I mentioned that when you look EUAs up, you, you see more than vaccines, although that is obviously the big, that's sort of the big elephant, right? Uh, you see a lot of other things as well. And I guess, Ben, I'm I'm curious right now is like anything that has to do with COVID just an automatic, you know, going down the EUA path or is it, is there like a slow boat that's happening parallel to all this stuff that we're sort of more long range looking at it and that's going to keep moving. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, you really have to kind of think in the context of risk benefit to understand I guess the EUA pipeline and um, what sort of goes under that. Um, so essentially, if, if you think about vaccines, um, you know, the risk benefit is highly favorable, but even with vaccines, uh, you're seeing things like hesitancy, uh, people taking a wait and see approach. Uh, that's an additional risk that the FDA has to take into account. Um, so a lot of drugs aren't necessarily going to, to, to go under the EUA um, for that reason. The other thing is that broader ad adoption of this approach would make it really difficult to enroll standard phase three trials. So that really puts both the FDA and drug developers in a bind. Um, thirdly, uh, one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of drugs you can actually um, get prior to approval uh, through expanded access um, and things of that nature. Uh, outside of the emergency use authorization. So 
there's a lot of existing programs uh, that exist where sponsors could sort of get drugs to patients that needed them, needed them outside of that program. Hmm. Okay. So I think I have some other questions coming up on that. So if there, there's these other programs where you can get it. So there's, uh, you know, when I think of like, say the rare disease category, yeah. rare disease category are these diseases where relatively speaking, very few people have them. I mean, it still might be hundreds of thousands of people, but in the grand scheme of, you know, you know, who needs Tylenol? It's, it's a lot smaller. Right. And, right. and they it might not be an, there might not be an easy solution or an, an easy um, therapy for it. Those can take a long time to get approved and they might have like very bad outcomes. And, and in many cases, far worse than COVID like on a, you know, on, on a per person basis. Right. So we're talking in the low percentage for, for, catastrophic outcome with COVID, some of these rare diseases are the rest of your life, things are bad and really hard. So are those the kind of things that you would see an, another way to get drugs delivered or are EUAs applied to things like that as well? Uh, that's a good question. So um, I think one way of thinking about that question is, does the existing set of tools that the FDA normally uses for rare drugs um, for severe diseases, uh, is that working? And is that sufficient outside of the emergency use application process? Uh, because keep in mind that, you know, again, this, the, the EUA uh, law is, is really focused around, uh, was initially focused around bioterrorism, is really focused around things like pandemics where you have a massive amount of people affected at uh, once, so you have to really act quickly. Um, that is a different set of risks and benefits uh, relative to, say, an oncology indication, relative to a rare disease indication, um, where you have different ways of expediting approval. You have rolling review, for example. Uh, you have fast track, uh, breakthrough therapy. These, these, these are tools that you could use to expedite approval within the existing uh, FDA framework without having to rely on the emergency use authorization. And what that, and, and I think what you have to think about is you have this balance of benefits. If, if you go through these conventional expedited pathways that the FDA is already using, you move quickly and you have a formal approval. Hmm. If you go through the emergency use authorization pathway, you move quickly, but you don't have a formal approval. And that, that means two big things. Uh, number one is this hesitancy issue that I talked about. You're, you're creating a culture in a perception that things are being rushed. And number two, and I think this is the one that um, people outside the industry don't think about as much, is you still have to get an approval. Mm -hmm. um, having, having the authorization uh, just, is, is just one, one endpoint sort of, or one, one, you know, on a trajectory that leads you towards approval. But the thing is, it makes it harder to get an approval because you have an authorization that means uh, your, your drug is, is out there, patients are receiving it. So then it becomes very difficult to enroll, for example, a double blind phase three study. So now you have a situation where you can't, you can't easily enroll, you can't do your study easily, but you still have to meet that criteria down the road. Um, that's a difficult problem. And that's really not something um, even to this point that has been fully figured out for, for vaccines and things like mm -hmm. that. Like how, how are they going to complete those studies? So those are issues you want to avoid if at all possible. And um, 
the other thing is is a lot of the, the, the existing programs if you know if you look at oncology indications for example that division moves incredibly rapidly um it, a lot of other divisions too and, and that's all of that speed takes place within with the tools that that are currently available um so in that sense i think you know the, the eua is going to remain a pretty narrow application it's and it's also an application that's already using most of the EA's, the fda's existing tools um and i don't think it will have that broad application uh outside of these these really big emergencies with pandemics or mm -hmm. things of that nature and so by my dad i yep, would just yep. say that um go back to the letter of the law you can't really do an eua until an emergency has been declared and you can't really declare that for some rare diseases because the population is still pretty small and and as ben pointed out it's it's not an end-all be-all for that medication you still have to file for full authorization or approval eventually and with rare diseases that becomes even harder to enroll those patients into a clinical trial that will give you those results yeah it's it's an interesting it's an interesting dilemma that that it sort of presents there because once once everybody's had it, I don't you know how do you even do a double blind study ever again? Like it right. sort of ruined the ruined the um, the available people to even do it with, right? So um, and it, you know I think it's important that with what you just said that it's not like EUA is not the only way to potentially get a therapy or a drug or a whatever out to people in need in a fast manner. It's just the one that's gotten the most press. And, yeah. it's, and it's likely to because it's in situations that are a huge deal for everybody and not just for a few people, right? I mean, some of these rare diseases, uh, you know, I think up, up here in New England, we have a lot of these kind of companies and, and, and whatnot. And it's something that they're serving hundreds of thousands of people and you may not know a single person that has ever had the, the issue that it's dealing with, right? I mean, it's, it's, it seems so far away. So, um, yeah. um, yeah, all I right. so, so I had a, um, I, I, I've listened in a couple times with uh, the NIH director, a guy named Francis Collin, and, and he's done some Q and A's with people, which I thought were really interesting. And he's talked to EUAs and the, the hesitancy issue and what's coming up. And I mean, I see it, I'm on Facebook and I see people like, Oh, I'm not going to tell, I'll let somebody else be the Guinea pig, you know, um, things like that. And, and he, I, I really liked how he answered some of those questions and how he answered the process. Right. And what, one of the things you said, Ben, is that, you know, the EUA isn't like this other thing, it, you know, they're using the same tools. Right. So, could you um actually i'll let uma do this one because i gave you a whole bunch of time there so how much different are they than a standard approval fda approval process for a vaccine or a drug or whatever um what's what's the difference there because it seems like there's shortcuts and and then you know there's no everybody keeps using the long-term studies right that's yeah you know we are all now the long-term study Right. Yeah. <laughs> so could you speak to that? Yeah, I, I would actually first advise people to not think of them as shortcuts. Um, so, you know, in traditional drug development, you have an established protocol. Um, and by that, I mean, the guidances uh, would lay out how many studies you'd have to do, your um, preclinical, clinical, as well as uh, the long-term studies in order to establish a benefit-risk profile 
Because remember, in a traditional approval, that drug is on the market forever until something adverse really happens and the agency has to pull it. Now, in an emergency use authorization, uh, think of it as, you know, your kitchen is on fire. You're cooking something and things are burning and you really need to stop that fire. Mm -hmm. Are you going to go open up that fire manual and catalog and say, okay, I first need to call the fire station. Then I need to do this. Then I need to turn off the alarm. You're not going to follow all those steps. Your goal is to try and put out that fire as quickly as possible. So a little bit of that mindset exists. Nevertheless, it's safety. Again, they're not going to take anything that they get in front of them. For example, the FDA may be more available to you to re, um, evaluate your protocol that you're submitting to conduct the study. Um, there may be a little um, um, variation allowed in terms of your manufacturing diligence uh, for long-term batch safety because that doesn't exist. Normally, they would need stability studies for over a year, but that's not possible right now because you want that drug to come out. So it's those kinds of practical allowances which again, continue to be monitored and have to be filed with the agency. So it's not like you don't collect that data. It's just that in the interim, you have an emergency use authorization. That's exactly what it is. It's not a full approval. It is the ability to use the product while they're still collecting the data. So that's the best way to look at it. And, and there are, it's not shortcuts. It is like taking the recipe and adapting it to the best you have using it and collecting the data in the interim. So if you're asking for long-term studies, we are the long-term studies. If, you know, if I got my vaccine in February, long-term data, if I don't get COVID till October, November, I'm providing that long-term data, right? Yeah. And would I rather do that or would I wait until they conduct that study in a limited number of patients for a whole year? By then, maybe we lose several people to COVID. So mm -hmm. that's exactly the way to look at it. Yeah, that's... Uh... <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of on board with that thinking. So, you know, I, I see a lot of different, a lot of different thoughts on this. And, you know, this, this podcast is, is more geared to people in the pharma space. So it, it, I, I'm not trying to hold a, uh, I mean, the J&J &J example, for example, the, the, um, the FDA came out and, and, and paused it when they had those initial few blood clots. Mm -hmm. And then they reviewed the data, they took the time to understand it, and then they lifted the pause. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not going to comment on whether that knee-jerk reaction actually affected or did not affect the, the public perception, but, but that's exactly what an EUA does. It is reacting to what happens during the course of that product's entry into the market. And, mm -hmm. and our fellow scientists at the division are not magical people. They can't anticipate everything. It's only when that vaccine gets into... Um, the public domain, that they're able to evaluate that risk benefit in a more dynamic fashion. And they have to do what they have to do in the interest of public safety. Um, yeah. But it's also confusing for people. And I would say that, you know, there's a lot of faith lost in that particular vaccine type, given what happened. Yeah. So I'm so just I, I just want to talk to a specific thing that has been brought up all along. I mean, I remember when they started doing like plasma therapies and stuff last year. Um, and I remember, I, I know in my own personal non-work circle, just people I know, they're like, we don't need a vaccine. We could just do the plasma therapy or we could do whatever the other stuff was. The, is it resveratrol? I don't know. There's a few other ones that are out there. And they're like, we could just do that. It works. And and I, I kind of in my own way was like, wait, so that seems good to you, but the vaccine that's being studied directly to this doesn't seem to, I'm not really sure I quite understand. But so say, say they take, this medication that's for arthritis, 
right? And they find that it it seems to help with with COVID, right? Um, whether it's treating it or 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 um, you know keep, keeping you from getting it as bad, does that ultimately get approved the same way? Is that an EUA or is that a different kind of um, approval? Because that a lot of people were talking about those last year. It's not so much anymore, but last year definitely. Yeah, that's a really good question. And it speaks to how broad the EUA actually is as a category. So, uh, or, uh, or as an authorization process, I should say. So on one end of the spectrum, you know, you have vaccines where there's a very specific guidance that's, you know, that's designed to give sponsors, you know, most of what they need to drive a clinical development program for approval. They also have advisory committee meetings. And those, you know, the advisory committees have to vote. Uh, the votes of those committees have been uh, strongly in favor of those drugs. So that's a very formal uh, vaccines. So that's a very formalized process. And that does fall under the EUA. In terms of the therapeutics, that is a process that is not formalized. And the reason goes back to the original intent of the law, which is if there's no therapies available, um, then really the goal of the EUA is to get therapies available as soon as possible. But once once something becomes available, everything that follows that is going to be compared to that therapy. So what you have is effectively an evolving standard of care. And that bar continuously gets raised. So if you remember back to May of last year when hydroxychloroquine was approved, uh, you know, that was clearly a pretty low bar at the time. Um, and when additional data came out that, that showed that there wasn't a lot of efficacy there, uh, that, that authorization was, was taken, taken away. Um, but then with the subsequent drugs that were approved, um, particularly um, with, with some of the monoclonal antibodies and things that target COVID or target the spike pro protein specifically, you know, those, those have a lot more positive data associated with them and those then become the standard of care. When that happens, the, the next drugs that you know are in line to get an authorization must they have to be the higher bar for efficacy and safety, uh, you know, based upon what's available. So, to answer your question, you know, in, in terms of the the therapeutic drugs, you know, that that standard goes up uh, as time goes on, um, and this sort of also kind of goes back to your question of, you know, should we use this process and is it a shortcut? Well. You know, when there's nothing on the market, when there's nothing to treat, when, when, you know, when everyone's struggling to figure out what is the standard of care, it, it may be a little bit of a shortcut. But over time, you know, as, as more good therapies come on the market, it's not a shortcut. Because if you think about, you think about the normal approval process, you have to establish safety and efficacy. But how do you establish efficacy in a standard approval? You compare it to placebo. It, but in the context of an EUA, you're not comparing to placebo, you're compared to standard of care, you're compared to what's being used in the moment to treat these patients. And in some ways that over time, that actually becomes a higher bar. And so, you know, so in terms of the shortcut question for the vaccines, it's not really a shortcut. You have a rigorous guidance, you're going through a formal advisory committee, you have an independent committee that evaluates all of these. Normally, that would be the end of it. But, but for the vaccines, you know, even there, they're still not approved. They have to go, you know, the ongoing safety monitoring is very intense. Um, and so that's not really a shortcut from a drug development perspective. In terms of the therapies, it's, it's not as much of a shortcut just because again, that, that comparison to, 
currently available therapy is, is ever evolving. It's very complex for people in drug development to try to anticipate how that's going to go. It's very complex to run clinical trials that compare these therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not really much of a, sh- a shortcut either at, at this point. And that, and what that really shows is that in both cases, those, those programs and processes are working as they, as they're supposed to. Oh, that's great. Thank you. That was a great answer. Um, okay. So <clears throat> I guess uh, it, this conversation is all about EUAs because of what's happened over the last year. It's really not new. It's been around for a long time and um, it's, it's even being, it's probably, I don't know how often it's been used, but it's been used over time. This is not a new thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just the scope currently, right? It's the scope that it's being used at and, and ultimately the effect, the effect of it, because um, they could have used it for any one or number of things, but it hasn't uh, been applied to a therapy or a drug or a diagnostic or anything on the level that this is being done at, because we're talking literally the entire population of every country that can pay for it right now, essentially, right? So, so do you, see this process, you know, we're going to learn a lot from going through this over the last year and and into the next year, probably as it continues. Do you see this becoming an easier process or maybe an even harder process because of the things that we've learned um, over the last year? Um, So do, do we expect maybe if it's easier, are there going to be more EUAs in the, in the future because it's easier or is it going to be harder um, and therefore less of them. And, the, uh, you know, there's a couple of different ways to approach how we would talk about this, but what, what do you think, Uma? So I wouldn't approach it more as easier or harder. If I could rephrase your question a little bit, I would, Go for say, it. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, would it be a more formal process or more of implementing what was put forth as Ben stated earlier to be used for specific purposes? So mm-hmm. the, FDA's experience over the past two years, maybe even into next year until the emergency is lifted, which I really think will happen as more people are vaccinated and as COVID rates go down, um, EUAs will have to be converted into full approvals. And we may get our COVID shots, but they're not going to be under an EUA. They're going to be under an approval, much like our flu vaccine that we get every year. Um, That being said, uh, we've learned a lot during this process. So maybe those quick Um, drug approvals that we saw, like hydroxychloroquine, may not happen come the next pandemic, God forbid, never comes. But um, what I'm thinking, and and I would like Ben to add to it, is that uh, the agency may, may have the opportunity to sharpen the pencil a little bit on the guidance for an EUA for the next um, uh, disaster announcement. So uh, it is, you know, we learn from experience and fair, you know, in all fairness to the regulatory authorities, uh, they also are learning with us through this. And, and this will allow them to make the rules and the regulations around this uh, to be more formal and to be better positioned such that we could have more EUAs uh, submitted correctly during this process. I mean, Jesse, we see the Pfizer's and the Moderna's and and a few other diagnostics and others, but do you know how many uh, companies are struggling to put together their EUA packages? Um, because Probably hundreds. Work, <laughs> hundreds, because yeah. some of them, of course, see it just as an opportunity, but some of them genuinely have material that could help people, whether it's diagnostic, whether it's drugs, or whether it's in the vaccine arena. 
but uh, they, they, they are not experienced in this environment. So mm. my, my sense is that this experience will allow both the players and the referees to kind of get their act together in terms of putting the guidance a little more firm around what is needed and how best to approach it. Yeah. Ben, do you have anything else there? Yeah, I guess the thing that I would add is that, you know, one of the lessons for this to me has been that a lot of the existing tools that the FDA has uh, do work pretty well, even in the context of an emergency. Um, you know, if you're in this business, you when you see some of the things that the FDA is doing, you immediately see what experiences that those actions are based off of. An example of this are things like like rolling review. Okay, this is this is a process that the FDA has had in place for a while. It allows sponsors to essentially have the FDA sort of review their data while clinical trials are ongoing uh, to sort of facilitate a faster approval. The FDA didn't come up with that for COVID, but you know immediately that was applied. Um, there were a lot of things, you know, just in terms of you know things that are done for breakthrough therapies, um, even some of the things that are, are done for orphan, but just all of the expedited approval uh, uh, guidance that had existed was all applicable. So I think, you know, to Uma's point about the, the, the overall guidelines for EUAs changing, I, th I think, um, you know, the template is there and a lot of the tools that the FDA has been developing for years um, worked really well. And so it's a matter of systematic application, which again is, you know, just having the right guidance there. And, but it's also a matter of resourcing, having staff, um, you know, like Uma said, if, you know, if you have 300 applications, uh, 300 INDs or, or uh, pre-EUA applications coming in, it's, it's difficult to, to separate for the wheat from the chaff and kind of mm. staff your agency to look at all of that stuff. So that's kind of the flip side of this is you need the people too. Um, but yeah, I do think, um, again, yeah, that Uma's right. I think, you know, we have, we have the lessons learned to sort of put together some more clear um, guidance around how to do these going forward, particularly, I think, for the therapies, there were a lot of lessons learned. Um, but 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 the tools are in place um, already in the context of sort of the, the standard or expedited drug development pathways that that the FDA has set up. So I, I want to this. I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but I kind of want to just ask ask it now because uh, the people that listen to this are all the way from really don't have a clue about what's going on to people that have a lot. And so um, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's interesting. So, and I'm just going to put myself on the lower end of that for this question. Um, but like, when I think of uh, drug development discovery, um, obviously, you have all of these applications, you have all these companies that are coming up with stuff, and you have regulatory authorities coming in and looking at what they're doing, what their results are, you know, you got the, the guy that ultimately has got to sign that thing so that they can go to the next thing, right? Um, and I've talked to a few people about how this process could have gone last year, and I'm not on that part of the world. But to me, everybody's literally sitting there ready to set if that if that data is good, they're ready to go, right? So yeah. there's a lot of processes that in, in a normal situation, they're very sequential, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're, this all has to be done, like every T's crossed, every I's dotted, and, and then they're like, are we sure? Are we sure? Are we sure? And then the people come in to check it over. And I know that there's stuff going on all the time, but it, it's very, you, you don't want this to get messed up, right? Mm -hmm. So that time, sign, time, next step, time, right? It's all these things are, 
leapfrogging with gaps in between. But for this, the entire world basically turned on its head and said, we got to get this done. Like, you know, they got, they got the two by fours set up waiting for somebody to come with the nail gun to nail it in. Right. Um, so is that, is that a, a kind of a true analogy description of what was going on and some of the reason we were able to get so much done so fast, or am I making that up? <laughs> no, you're not making that up at all. I mean, in fact, for some of the EUAs we've supported, um, our teams would have worked at a pace that we normally would not have had it been a regular approval. And again, the sponsor at their end did the same thing. So it's more like you really need to get your act together as quickly as humanly possible while crossing all the essential eyes and um, dotting all the essential eyes and crossing don't cross the eyes don't <laughs> we have to, <laughs> no we have to do that i just never want people to think that you know all the eyes were not dotted and the t's were not crossed there's you can cross all 100 of them or you can cross 80 of the critical ones that won't let your beam fall down yeah. and in the case of an eua we've done the former yeah so we've just gone ahead on the ladder. We've just gone ahead and crossed the essential ones that give you the confidence in the safety of the drug because that's what's needed. And then while we continue to dot the remaining I's and cross the remaining T's for the full approval. Right. So don't think that the guard has been let down because an EUA has been approved and now you know anything will fly and anything can be no. And, in, and it's on all fronts, on the manufacturing front, on the research front, on the data front, on the data standards front and everything else. It's, it's again, trying to put out that fire as quickly as possible while still trying to see what is the best way to, to go about it. Yeah, two, two things that really stick out to me is uh, I think I've heard people say something like, oh, well, you know, the fast or all these different reasons why maybe it wasn't. But at the end of the day, this is one of the most, these are all the big ones are some of the most studied <laughs> things in history, right, going into being actually um, put out onto the marketplace. And the other big one from a speed perspective is we were manufacturing all this stuff long before it was approved Yes. in anticipation of it being approved, which that cut down a ton, right? As soon as, as soon as, you know, Moderna like kind of knew what they were doing, they're like, this is how we're going to have to manufacture it. We need somebody ready to go, which that doesn't happen in a normal drug process that fast because they can't risk the money that it takes to even set up the process mm -hmm. and the manufacturing right so there's a lot of things that were being done just knowing that it's gonna happen and and basically you know the the risk was worth it um because of the 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 ultimate long-term um a benefit that we were all gonna see so i mean that just doesn't happen with i don't know i can't imagine probably on one hand, you can count the amount of drugs that have been stockpiled before anything was ever approved um, like that. But certainly yeah. never like this. Um, so that it's, that's a big difference. Um, that's how we have however many hundred million people vaccinated in the US already. So um, absolutely. We, and that also we had to wait till final approval that you know, we wouldn't even nobody would have it yet, probably. Right? Absolutely. And that explains why we are ahead in the in the US compared to so many other countries. They, they mm -hmm. couldn't have afforded that stockpiling or manufacturing or even the technology for some of these mRNA vaccines. Oh, yeah. And that too, <laughs> the whole new thing. So, um, well, so we've already this this is kind of a one of our last questions here. We've already covered it a little bit. But so what do you think are some of the things the industry can learn from this effort moving forward? So 
we may not be doing e, you know, this may not mean more EUAs, but maybe because we got to see how things could work if, you know, a lot of say red tape was cut out in the process. I don't know if that's the right terms, but say some red tape is cut out, you know, maybe, maybe we could in the normal process do things better, more efficiently. Um, yeah, there's a number of ways of thinking about this. And I, I'm asking this and last year on our podcast, we talked to a few different people about say in the manufacturing side, everything had to be signed. Like, you know, every step when, or a batch process, you know, people are signing it by hand. This is the way we do it. You know, I, of course we do it that way. And it was within almost weeks that we went from pen and paper to digital signatures. It changed like that. It was really fast. So um, that, that ultimately on the manufacturing end is going to make a pretty big difference, I think. It's because that's going to domino into a million other things, and it already has. So on the discovery and testing side, what do we, what do we see maybe changing and, and, and being better now that we've gone through this process? I'm sorry. Hey, Ben, why don't you do that? I, I didn't tell who to ask who to answer. Though. Yeah, sure. Um, so from my perspective, the, the, the vaccine uh, development and regulatory structure, uh, given everything that was happening at the time, I thought it went incredibly well. It, it really showed um, an almost an idealized process. Like Uma said, you know, we, we clearly we were, you know, one of the first, the first countries the first to, to, to really, you know, move some of these forward. I think the real area where there's um, a more need for development is, is with the therapies and not, not, not even just for COVID, but sort of in the, the general scientific question of how do you test therapies in a situation like that? Um, you know, it's very difficult if, you know, patients are dying, if you can't give placebo, you know, um, so how do you compare therapies in that context? What kinds of clinical trial structures uh, could you use? Uh, so just to go back, I mean, with, with the vaccines, you know, those are pretty straightforward placebo controlled trials. I mean, there's complexity there, but, but overall, um, you know, they're straightforward, but for the therapies, much more complex, you know, the FDA has a guidance now around master protocols, which is this kind of coordinated study where you try to evaluate a whole bunch of drugs at once. Um, and you either do this simultaneously or you sort of set them up to, to where they're sort of competing. There's sort of competitive efficacy amongst the drugs. These are, these are really complex. I don't want to go into detail on them. I don't even understand them completely, but, <laughs> but I think that's, that's one area where, um, you know, things need to really be refined, you know, and if we think of the original spirit of, of the EUA, which was for preparation, um, then figuring out how to make these kinds of clinical trials work better is going to be a big part of preparing for the next pandemic. So to me, that's what's really interesting. But it's not even just for the, the pandemic. You know, there's always this question, you know, with advocacy groups or with, you know, different different people. Well, how, you know, should we be comparing drugs directly for other, just for standard approval? You know, should, should you have to do a comparison to, to standard of care? Is, is placebo comparison enough? And all of those things kind of really come to a head, I think, with, uh, with, with what we're seeing with COVID and particularly with therapies. So I think that's gonna be an area that's gonna be really interesting and there's gonna be a lot of active development. You'll see things, you know, some of the technology things, even like using real world evidence and things like that that are sort of new, 
those are all going to be brought into the fold on that too. But I think there's definitely an awareness that that's underdeveloped and, and probably an area that's going to be very active in the next few years. And I would also add that um, going back to your manufacturing side, Jesse, making sure that you know, all of those ancillary manufacturing sites are completely ready. I mean, mm. you know, with with um, with the vaccines, we have seen instances where the failure of one site, you know, caused vaccines to be delayed or halted and could not yep. be shipped out. Um, you know, if this had been just a regular drug, you and me probably would have never heard of it um, because it doesn't affect the whole population as much. So um, lessons learned from here could be even on that front, you know, sites that manufacture medications for use are always up to par with quality standards and procedures and audits, et cetera, such that nothing ever coming out of those facilities are questionable. Mm. Oh, that's good. That And that is the space that I'm in every day. That's the, those are the people that I'm talking to. And yeah, that was kind of sad when that did happen one facility. Um, and I know that I'm, I have some other interviews um, that I'm doing with, with companies that are trying to make it as easy as possible for a facility to be able to go from one one therapy or one drug to the next drug so that you can switch between them without it being you know such a big deal yeah. um and and work out sort of modular <clears throat> manufacturing um processes to to minimize the cost and the the facility impact of going from one thing to the next and the world of um of CMOs instead of CROs. I mean, they're really the companies that are pushing the boundaries on that right now because they're having to deliver yes. in unbelievably fast times these solutions for the Pfizer's of the world, right? That mm -hmm. and all the raw materials needed for the vaccines and, and other sure. drugs and everything else. Yeah. And and there and there's a lot of specialization because it's and I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, in, in goes a bunch of ingredients in one side and out pops, pops a needle on the other side for your arm, right? It's generally not how it works. There's a lot of specialization. It's, you know, parts, parts of the, the vaccine are coming in and going out and then they're getting put together and then they're getting put in bulk form and then they're putting into, you know, into some delivery mechanism and then they're getting packaged. And I mean, all these things, uh, is, it's, it's pretty amazing to, to see it all. I think the one that got the most sort of airtime last year was the refrigeration, right? Yeah. Who thinks about refrigeration? Yeah. It's like, no, yeah. you just, you know, put it in the mail, but no, you got to keep these things at some Arctic temperature to keep them, keep them good. And I think even that's been fixed a little bit since then, but it's a lot of things to think about. We don't all, we don't all know them all. So all right. Well, Hey, this was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this today. I definitely learned a lot. Um, I can, I can, I can talk about this kind of stuff for a long time. And I've actually had personal, personal people like friendships outside of this industry that I'm like, Hey, I'm doing this interview with these people to talk about EUAs. You should probably listen in on this at some point, you know, because they got questions about it. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited for them to be able to hear what you guys have to say. Um, so before we close out though, if, if you could, Uma, who are the people that you, you know, if you were to say, Hey, come talk to me. Like you guys need to talk to me. Who are, who are those people that you would like to, to be reaching out to you and your team? And what is the best way for, for that to happen? So companies that are interested in submitting an EUA, of course, from the work perspective, um, that's what we do. We support the entire application process. And also Ben and his team will navigate you through all of the regulatory complexities, um, not just in the US, but also in other regions. Um, so we encourage you to contact us and you can reach us through our website. 
um, www.mmsholdings.com or, or contact us through any of our social media pages. But Jesse, I'd also like to take this opportunity to invite any lay person who is worried about the EUA and worried about the vaccine mm -hmm. and its safety, because it is a personal goal for me to try and convince some of the naysayers about the science. I'm not going into any other space, but if you're worried that the science was not adequate to get these drugs on the market, then uh, please allow us the opportunity, me, Ben, and, and other colleagues at MMS to tell you that there is, this is scientifically based. There is diligence in this process and don't get scared by the word emergency use and don't interpret that as being unsafe and a reason for you not to be vaccinated. Wow. All right. So, so that was an answer. We'll see how viral this thing goes. <laughs> Maybe your inbox will get filled up with a whole bunch of people. You're like, why are they emailing? <laughs> hey, if I can get the vaccination rates to go up that way, kudos to you. All right. Yeah, no, that would be, that'd be great. Um, I, but uh, anyways, thank you for that. We're going to, for anybody that's listening, watching, we'll have um, the contact information attached to all the different versions of this that go out to the world. Uh, with the website, um, uh, links to uh, Ben and Uma's uh, LinkedIn. So you could go and say hi to them there and see what they've up, been up to and all that they've done. I did not read their full bio. So you can get to know them there and, um, and, and reach out to them personally or reach out to the company if you have uh, any needs in regards to um, work with EUA. So thank you both, Ben Uma. This was awesome. I appreciate it. It's my first um, three-person podcast. I think it went okay. I don't, yeah. I don't think we interrupted each other too, too much. So good job. Appreciate it. And uh, I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Jesse. Thanks again for listening to the Modern Biopharma Podcast. Please reach out if there is someone you'd like us to interview or a topic you'd like us to discuss. We will make it happen. And don't forget to like us on iTunes or subscribe on YouTube. It helps us get the word out. See you next time.